0: on Local Now, Channel 525. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, A ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue with our study in the book of Judges, the tribes of Israel keep trying to move forward while ignoring their need to repent of their sin. And so they just make things worse. We'll pick it up in Judges chapter 21 verse 1. The title of the message is, A Call to Repentance.
1: Judges 21. When we last left Israel, in chapter 20, they had killed every non-combatant in Benjamin. They had burned all of their cities. The only known survivors from the tribe of Benjamin are 600 soldiers who escaped to some caves. And when it's all over, Israel realizes they've wiped out an entire tribe in their anger. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I've never blown it that badly. <laughs> I've blown it badly. Not that badly. But when you blow it badly like this, it's designed to get your attention, like the aftermath of it. When you kind of look at all the carnage of your actions and you look around, it's supposed to get your attention. You're supposed to look around at that and it's supposed to get your attention. That's something seriously needs to change about how you're approaching things. But Judges, it doesn't end that way. Israel Plows forward in the same mindset, and they continue making similar blunders, and thus the book ends with a call to repentance. And here's the truth: the people who lived during this time they can't change; they've already lived their lives. But we can, and that's the whole point of the book of Judges. We need the King of Kings. We need him in our own hearts. We need to be living him in our own lives, and we need him to come back and fix our world. But in the meantime, it's a call. To repentance. So chapter 21, we begin in verse 1. Now the men of Israel, they had sworn in Mizpah saying, there shall not any of us give his daughter unto Benjamin to wife. And so the people came to the house of God. They abode there till evening before God and lifted up their voices and wept sore. And they said, "O Lord God of Israel, why is this come to pass in Israel that there should be today one tribe lacking in Israel? Now, we have to go back in time here to understand the significance of why they're all upset. For it says in verse 1, Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah. Mizpah was where they had all originally gathered to figure out what's going on. Why did we get mailed body parts? You know, what atrocity has gone on in Israel that these parts have been mailed all over the nation? And so when they get there and they hear the testimony of the Levite who describes what the men of Gebeah did to his concubine, they decide that the men of Gabeah need to be dealt with. We need to tell the men of Benjamin to turn them over. They need to be executed to put the sin out of the land. So when they're making this decision, they decide that until that happens, and until Benjamin complies, because Benjamin had left the conference, they were angry and they had left, they didn't agree with the decision that was made, all of the men gathered there, there was a huge mass of people there, they made an oath saying that there shall not any of us give his daughter unto Benjamin to wife. Now, essentially, when Benjamin leaves, they don't agree with the conclusion that the men of Gabeah need to, to be dealt with for their crimes. Everyone else decides to boycott Benjamin, basically. You want to support people who live like this? Well, then you're going to shrink as a tribe because your sons won't be able to pass on your name when they can't get any wives from any of us. So it's essentially a boycott of Benjamin. Now, boycotts, by their very nature, are a form of punishment. They are a unified coercion to force another group to feel enough pain to change their stance. Now, Israel did this anticipating that if it came to war, they'd easily win. And either way, then, Benjamin, if they would either given before because of the boycott, or through war, they would lose, and therefore, either way, Benjamin would learn their lesson and they would get in line. But what the rest of the nation failed to realize was the evil motivation behind this boycott. Number one, their, the motivation of arrogance. In thinking that Benjamin would just back down to their superior power. I find that frequently, particularly in the States, we have a lot of power. We have income. Most of us live fairly decent lives in the United States. Even those who are, we would consider to be the lowest income level in the United States still have a higher income than like, but I think the number is like 91% of the rest of the world. So, we are very wealthy. We have a lot of buying power. And so frequently we, in our arrogance, we decide, well, we'll just boycott this group. They're not doing what we want to do. We'll boycott them with our buying power. So there is an arrogance there thinking that people will just back down to that superior power. That's what they're doing here. The other motivation, evil motivation they fail to recognize behind this boycott is their anger. And we know that they're angry because they go way beyond a boycott when they wipe out all the non-combatants. They actually render their promise unnecessary because they wipe out every woman in Benjamin. Listen, forcing the world to adopt our beliefs by economic coercion may be a very American ideal. Unfortunately, we are seeing it turned against us now by those who have more economic power than we do as they threaten movie studios and this like this or pulling out business of states that will not pass certain legislature or pass certain laws or they do pass certain laws. But forcing the world to adopt our beliefs by economic coercion, while it may be very American, is an unbiblical concept. You'll never find it in Scripture, not in a positive light. Jesus still went to the temple despite the religious leaders' corruption. And he never lifted a finger to protest in any way the occupation of Rome or its crimes against his people. Never. Guys, we don't boycott the world. We reach out to lost people with the gospel. We don't cut anyone off. Even when Paul was asked the question, he's dealing with the idea of how do you discipline a brother or sister who's living in unrepentant sin he explained to the people of Corinth, he said, now listen, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to accompany with the sexually immoral, but I didn't mean, he says, the sexually immoral of this world, or with the covetous of this world, or extortioners, or with idolaters of this world, for then you must needs go out of the world. That's not what I was trying to say. We don't boycott the world. We reach out to lost people with the gospel. We also don't boycott our brothers and sisters. I've seen people do that. Well, I've just stopped going to church until they change their policy. Well, first off, half the time you do that, the people don't even know that you're not doing it. How about you go and talk to leadership and sit down with them, share your thoughts, share your heart, share scripture. Sometimes people share stuff with me and I go, you know what? You're right. We need to change that. (laughs) Because sometimes I'm not aware, I'm not remembering a certain scripture when we've made a decision or maybe we've just operated that way for a while and didn't realize what we were doing. Or there's the possibility that you're not right. (laughs) And then you need to be corrected through scripture as well. We don't boycott the family of God. We correct our brothers and sisters in love with the goal of winning them back to the word. And if there is going to be an excommunication, there's a process that goes through. It's not something to be entered into lightly. See, when we ignore the Bible and we turn to boycotting, it's because we want to regain control. We don't like the way things are. It's not out of a love for truth or a hatred for evil. It's a way to get back at those who have threatened what we like or what we have or what we want. And thus, what we've had in our own culture, at least, I grew up in the 80s when it was popular for Christians to boycott everything. And what we found was we just found that we were drawing lines and creating very clear enemies and showing that we were their enemies. And thus, we ended up with the situation James describes in James chapter 4. He says, "...from whence comes wars and fightings among you? Do they not come from this, even of your lusts that you war in your members?" You lust and you have not. You want something, but you don't have it. That's why you're fighting. You kill and you desire to have, but you can't obtain it. You fight and you war, yet you have not because you ask not. How are we supposed to approach a situation we don't like? We're supposed to pray. And then sometimes you ask and you don't receive from the Lord because you're asking amiss. You're not asking the right things that you may consume it upon your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not realize that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We adopt the worldly solutions to spiritual problems. That's why we end up in this mess. You know, one of the conversations that I've been having with Beverly a lot lately is the idea of suffering, of not craving a life of ease. You know, as we look at our current situation in our culture right now, things are rough. They're not easy. And I'm watching people's faith deteriorate around me. And that's not because of the circumstances. That's because the circumstances are just exposing what's already there in my own heart. And so we cannot adopt worldly solutions to spiritual problems. I wonder if some of the things that are happening in our culture right now, some of the things that are happening in our society are opportunities for us to embrace a life of denial of self. If they're not an opportunity from the Lord to lay aside the weights, not just the sins, but the weights that so easily ensnare us. Now, Israel adopts a worldly solution here because they aren't walking with the Lord. So what does that say of us when we're doing the same type of things? Now you might be asking, Pastor Will, what if my conscience is really convicted though? Hey, if your conscience is bothered by eating somewhere or purchasing from a certain company, then you need to obey your conscience. That's something the Bible does tell us to do. And we do have scripture regarding that area of liberty. You have the right in Christ to not participate in something because your conscience is bothered by that. That's fine. The Bible tells us we need to listen to our conscience there. But the Bible never gives any reason for an organized coercion from the body of Christ. Never. If you have conscience issues also, there's no need to go public about it to get others on board. You don't need to go scream it to the world and say, let's boycott this because you have a conscience issue. All you immediately do is you draw a line in the sand to someone else in the body of Christ who doesn't have that conscience issue, and you tell them, if you don't get on my side of this issue, you don't love Jesus. That's a problem, and we are seeing it all over the place right now. You think this whole government thing is true? You don't love Jesus. You're a fool. You think it's a conspiracy theory? You're crazy. You don't love Jesus. That's what we're seeing right now, all over the place there is one place we draw a line in the sand and it is here do you believe that jesus is the way the truth and the life and no man comes to the father but by him no well then i i'm sorry i can't jump over that line for you i can't go there with you i can still look at someone and go i disagree with you but i'm cool with that because we have freedom of conscience in these issues But when we go public about these things and we start demanding or or eviscerating someone else and saying, if you don't agree with me, you don't love Jesus. You are immediately cutting off a brother or sister in the Lord. There's literally no biblical place for that. I chuckle at the things that Christians get bent out of shape over at times because what we should be upset about doesn't upset us. (laughs) If we've got a a brother in the church who's being unfaithful to his spouse or a child who's just totally rebelled against their parents, we don't bug them. But we'll bug the brother over here because you just sang a song by Hillsong. What's wrong with you? It's true. It wouldn't be funny if it wasn't true. So if you have conscious issues about something, that's fine. But there's no need to go public about it to get others on board. If you're truly doing it because you're following the Lord his lead, then have that faith to yourself like Paul says in Romans 14 about issues of liberty. What Israel should have done is been satisfied with the destruction of the men of Gibeon who did the crime, but their anger drove them from fixing a problem to punishing the guilty. And our punishment, unfortunately, the way we do punishment as human beings is often unmeasured severity rather than righteousness. In James chapter 1, verse 20, he tells us, be slow to wrath, slow to speak, quick to listen, and that's 119. But then in 20, he says, why we do that, why that is a need. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Frequently, I get asked by people and say, I'm angry about this, you know, and I say, listen, it's okay to feel angry. I said, lots of things get me angry, but where we go with that, Right? Where we go with that is what determines if we're going to be okay in our behavior or not. If I take that anger and I cry out to the Lord and go, I'm angry, God, I'm frustrated, and then we let the Lord work on our heart, well, then, trust me, he can handle all that. There have been times I've gone walking and I'm just, I'm telling the Lord about it. And by the time I get home, I'm in this repentant, humble mood of, God, what is wrong with me? Instead of being angry at the world. But the problem is if I don't go to the Lord and I just start being angry and they start speaking to other people, I start wrecking things. I start destroying things. That's what anger is designed to do. That's why the Bible says, be angry and don't sin. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Paul tells us, dearly beloved, don't avenge yourselves. That's the problem. What happens is when we get angry, we go, something needs to be done. And our anger begins to destroy things around us. And so Paul tells us, dearly beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. The word give place means step aside and let it run by you. Get out of the way. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let him deal with it. Now, because Israel made this foolish vow before the war even starts, now after the war's over, they finally realize the predicament they're in. And yet, instead of repent and cry out to the Lord, they blame the Lord. Verse 2, And the people came to the house of God, and they abode there till evening before God. They lifted up their voices, and they wept sore. Sounds good so far, right? But then look at verse 3. They said, O Lord God of Israel, why does is this come to pass in Israel that there should be today one tribe lacking in Israel? One tribe's going to go into non-existence. Why, God? What do you mean, Why? Because you murdered them all, you bunch of sillies. You just (laughs) killed them all. You already know the answer to that. Benjamin's tribe wasn't at risk of non-existence because of the Lord. It was because of them. You know, when David sinned against the Lord by numbering the people, God gave him three choices for judgment. David chose not to be defeated by his enemies for a three-month period because he knew man's tendency is to not show mercy. Instead, he chose the option of a plague in order to fall into God's hands because he knew he is righteous and merciful. And sure enough, when God saw the weeping, he stopped. He withheld full judgment. He was merciful. But see, Israel, they overstep in their anger. They created this problem. God would have never wiped out the entire tribe and all the non-combatants. Now, it's not that they couldn't come to God for help on that. It's not that they couldn't come to the Lord and say, God, we blew it. Now what? But they needed to recognize what they'd done, their part to play in creating the problem. And sadly, they do not. They just sit there all night crying, going, why God? Why? Why? Why do you let this happen? Why do you do this? And so verse four, it came to pass on the morrow that the people rose up early and they built there an altar because God's not saying anything to them. And so they built an altar, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. I mean, these guys were serious. They were dedicated to whatever their next course of action would be. And it shows how dedicated they are here that they had to build an altar because the tabernacle already had an altar. So the only reason to build a second altar would be because there were too many offerings to be made. Again, they're dedicated. They're serious. They're united. We're going to fix this no matter what we have to do, God. We want to hear from you. That's great. But there's still a problem. You just murdered a ton of non-combatants. How about a sin offering? They actually have provision in scripture for what to do when you do this. Burn offerings and peace offerings are voluntary offerings. Sin offerings are when you blow it. Your entire nation is mired in wickedness right now. Gebeah was just the ugliest picture of it. How about a sin offering? And you know what? Jerusalem still stands just a few miles away as proof of your hypocrisy. You wiped out one of your own tribes, but you got a whole tribe of pagans here that God told you to wipe out that you haven't even touched. How about a trespass offering? It became popular about seven or eight years ago, a new doctrine that we don't need to confess our sin as Christians. We're redeemed, we're forgiven. It's wrong. You're looking backwards when you confess your sin. We should look forward and never look back to our past when we weren't forgiven but the Bible does not teach that. It's good to look back, not so we feel condemned or because we question God's forgiveness. It's good to look back so that we can move forward in the right direction instead of continuing along the wrong path. Israel's problem during the period of the judges is that God wasn't their king and his word wasn't their standard. That hasn't changed. And so if they don't deal with that through confession and through repentance, it doesn't matter how much weeping they do. It doesn't matter how many offerings they make. doesn't matter how many days they stay at church. They will continue down the wrong road because they've never left it. And that's what repentance is, guys. It's turning around. It's leaving the wrong road to get on the right road. Not because doing the right thing saves us. It's because trusting the Lord requires by its very meaning that I stop trusting myself. I stop doing things my way. That's what that song means. I will trust in only you. Like we have this idea that faith is this ethereal thing, you know, like faith. And when you hear unbelievers talk about faith, that's usually how they mean it. But the Bible doesn't talk of faith that way. I heard one pastor once say, actually I've heard multiple pastors say this, but Faith and obedience are just two sides of the same coin. Heads and tails. Like you have a head side and a tail side on a coin. But they're the same thing. The idea is they stem from trusting God. That's what faith means. It means to rely upon God. To trust him. And to trust him means, well, I'm not trusting me anymore. I'm not trusting my way of doing things. And so the idea is that we trust the Lord. We do things his way. Now, Because Israel never repents of their past, they continue to blunder into the future, even though they're desperately trying to do the right thing. Verse 5. And the children of Israel, apparently they made a second foolish promise. Verse 5. And the children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel that came not up with the congregation unto the Lord? I love this because they're kind of like, you know, here's the Lord, at least with me, all right? I'm like, oh Lord, how you doing? You know, I open, my, open the Bible and I start talking to the Lord. I start reading stuff and I'm like, Ugh, you want to talk about that way I handled my kids yesterday, don't you? Yeah, we, I want to talk to you about that, Will, because you didn't do that right. Yeah, I, do, I really don't want to talk about that, Lord, because I didn't do that right. And, and I really, I'm still upset about it. And I, I really don't want to talk to you about it. So what I'd like to do is talk, I'd like to talk to you about this new project at church that's going on. We need to step out in faith. We need to trust you for this. And Israel kind of reminds me of this here. They're waiting on the Lord. They're making all these offerings and everything. They're sitting around and like, God's going, can we deal with this whole like I'm not your king issue that's going on here? And like the fact you murdered all the non combatants. Can we talk about that? And they're going, No, I really don't want to talk about that. And as they're sitting around, finally one of them just goes, Hey, remember that other promise we made? Who, who didn't come and show up to this fight against Benjamin? For they had made a great oath concerning him that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. Why did they ask this? Because they made another unbiblical promise. How many bad promises did they make before this war started? You know, again, I would say it probably felt great to be unified when they all made this promise together. We're all in this together. But now it becomes another stumbling block in figuring out their next course of action. Because as the children of Israel finally begin to regret what they did, verse 6, and the children of Israel repented them for Benjamin, their brother, and said, there is one tribe cut off from Israel this day. How shall we do for wives for them that remain, seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them of our daughters to wives? They know the solution is where we need to give them wives, but we messed up because we made a dumb promise. In our anger and in our arrogance, They finally realize the wrong they've done and its consequences. But unfortunately, it's not a godly repentance that seeks God. That goes back to his word about how to do things the right way. Instead, they continue trusting themselves and try to resolve it on their own. How shall we do for wives, for them that remain, seeing we've made this vow, we've got this problem, so what do we do? Well, verse 8, Israel's first solution. And they said, well, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that didn't come up to Mizpah to the Lord? And behold, they start asking around. They find out that no one came to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. No one came from the city of Jabesh-Gilead. Now, Jabesh-Gilead was a city on the other side of the Jordan River. And in their mind, verse 9 says, for the people were numbered and behold, there was none of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead there. By not joining, basically, they were supporting the Benjamites. You're supporting evil because you didn't join with us, so you're supporting evil. So they decide to make up their wrong to their Benjamite brothers by killing more of their brothers and sisters. This is the kind of absurd decision-making that happens when I try to move forward in my relationship with God without repenting of where I'm at right now.
0: This has been In the Word